Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. The news last week that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring after 27 years on the highest court in the land will have far-reaching and long-range consequences when it comes to American jurisprudence, constitutional law, and domestic policy. But it is also a matter of no small immediate and short-term political significance, and one that Joe Biden and his White House view, not wrongly, as manna from heaven. An opportunity for an administration that has lately seen its agenda on Capitol Hill stalled, its efforts to vanquish the COVID pandemic frustrated, and its poll numbers trending ever downward. An opportunity for that very administration to turn the page, put some points on the board, shore up its support with key elements of the Democratic base, throw into sharp relief the stakes of this year's midterm elections, and make history in the process by putting the first black woman ever on the U.S. Supreme Court. But the Breyer news came against the backdrop of mounting tensions in Ukraine and the rising prospect of conflict with Russia there, Developments fraught, not just militarily and geostrategically, but also in terms of domestic politics. As the last foreign crisis that Joe Biden faced, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan proved in spades last summer. By sheer coincidence, I was out in Los Angeles last week as the Briar and Ukraine news made headlines, which gave me a chance to sit down and chop up the implications of those stories and many more for Joe Biden, his fellow Democrats, and the Republican Party with an old and dear friend, who also happens to be one of the sharpest, savviest, wittiest, and most delightful political gurus I know. The co-director of USC's Center for the Political Future, co-host with David Axelrod and Robert Gibbs of the excellent Hacks on Tap podcast, and longtime NBC News political analyst, the one and only Mike Murphy. The state of our union is disastrous. I quit because you people are all morons. And that would be the shortest presidency in the history of the world. But it is true. Who are the morons in this case? Our culture drives our politics, and our culture's in trouble. As most of you know, Mike Murphy made his bones as one of the most prominent and successful Republican political consultants of his generation. A tough tactician, a shrewd strategist, and an ingenious ad maker who helped elect an untold number of Republican candidates to the House, Senate, and governorships around the country back in the era before the Republican Party sold its soul, lock, stock, and barrel to Donald Trump, and then became captive en masse to the cult of Trumpism. In this new Trumpist era, the most famous candidates that Mike Murphy championed, people like Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, to name a few, barely have a place in the Republican Party anymore. And Murphy, the prime mover in 2020 behind the group Republican voters against Trump, has become essentially an unemployable pariah in today's debased, corrupted, ideologically bankrupt incarnation of the GOP. For reasons known only to him, Mike Murphy still believes that Republicanism can be saved, that the party can turn back the tide of Trumpism. And while a lot of people will think that is a dubious proposition, it is, in fact, a noble cause. If you believe, as I do, and Mike does, that the only way American democracy can be saved is if there are at least two non-authoritarian, non-autocratic political parties that actually believe in the rule of law, in free and fair elections, and a robust and healthy civil society that represents the Constitution of the United States. Two parties that actually believe that is in democracy itself. So while, as I said, I have my doubts about the wisdom or even the sanity of Mike's continued quest to reform and save 
and bring back to life the party that he loved once upon a time and that he now looks upon with some skepticism and even some fear. I'm certainly rooting for him. And either way, there are a few people in the business that I have more fun talking politics with than Mike. For this episode of the podcast, we covered a lot of ground from the choices that Joe Biden is facing in picking a briar replacement and in trying to keep Putin in check in Ukraine to both parties' prospects in the 2022 midterm elections, to the question of whether Donald Trump is really going to run in 2024 and what it will mean for the GOP if he does or if he doesn't, to an entertaining and diverting trip down memory lane in which Mike laid out the whole story, warts and all, of how he got into the consulting racket, and a racket it is, and how he became one of the most noted practitioners of and defenders of the practice of contrast advertising and negative campaigning, so much so that for a period of time, Mike's car had vanity plates that read simply, Go Neg. At the time, Murphy took a lot of shit from goody-goodies in the press and even some in politics over his bare-knuckle tactics. But from the vantage point of today, the stuff that Mike did back then seems pretty innocent. And as we sit here today, he looks like a classic old softy, although one who is still fired by a passionate belief in trying to keep our democratic system a democratic system, a guy who is doing as much as he can each and every day to try to ward off a future in which our politics descends into a bleak and brutal landscape filled with nothing but hell and high water. Look, uh, of course people don't agree, but we have a country that is based on human rights, democracy, and so forth. But I'll tell you what Lincoln thought, what Washington thought, and what people today still think. It's an experiment. It's an experiment. And I'll tell you something. You know who will see whether that experiment works? It's you, my friend. It's that next generation. And the one after that. My grandchildren and their children. They'll determine whether the experiment still works. And of course, I am an optimist, and I'm pretty sure it will. So, Mike Murphy, I ask you this question. First of all, I'm going to ask you a serious question about Steve Breyer. This yeah. is obviously, we have the giant news. Uh, right. Whenever, historic. Anytime a Supreme Court justice decides to retire and there's right. a, a seat to fill, it's a big deal. But, like, just in the wake of what you just said, mm-hmm. you know, Steve Breyer, apparently, I mean, at least for the cameras, seems to think that everything's going to be fine because... Mm-hmm. Unlike Mike Murphy, who thinks everyone's a moron and that the culture's fucked. Not quite what I well, said, but, but, yeah, but go essentially, ahead. you know, I say everything yeah. is fucked because the culture's fucked, was your argument. Right. He's like, I'm an optimist. Yeah, you he, know, he thinks it's going to be fine. Do you think Breyer's just like putting it on because he's no, on national no. television? I think the charm is he believes it. And he, yeah. you know, watching that, I would, God, I hope he's right. There's a lot of evidence that he may not be, at least in the short term, but, you know, he is public spirited. That's something that we're losing in public life right now. It's all this zero sum, gotta kill you, you're evil, I'm right. And he was somebody, to his great credit, I think, who believed in the institution and took the wider view. God, I hope it catches on, because it's exactly what we need, but we're not there right now. I talked to Brian Cox yesterday, uh, and he says that, like Logan Roy, he is disappointed in the human experiment. Mm-hmm. And I didn't you know, say, well, you know, obviously, it's like you get to my age, you look back, you say, God, we're all just all fucked. This is just all things fucked. It's obviously fucked. It's obviously fucked beyond redemption, beyond, it's irredeemable. There's no way to come back from this. I sort of sense that there's more of that in you. You're a little Logan Royish, aren't you? Well, no. I am. It, I'll say, well, I'm not trying to put it okay. on you. Okay, uh, well, if I had a media empire, it would be fun. But 
I used to fantasize about being the editor of the New York Post just yeah. to write headlines and make trouble. Yeah. I would say I'm, like any romantic at heart, it's, it's heartbreaking because yeah. so much is going so right yeah. that we decide to be the nation of petty squabbling and stupidity and when we have other options. So it is a depressing time. I mean, our democratic institutions are under attack, yeah. but it's an attack of cannibalism. We're eating them ourselves. And it gets you down on humans. But I'd love to be wrong because I, I want to be an optimist. It's basically like the whole country is an episode of Yellow Jackets right now. Everyone's trying to like <laughs> paganism and jealousy spite. Uh, well, think about it. We have to pay people to take a miracle drug. Yes, right. Seriously. Yeah, really? Yes. That's what we are. We're supposed to be the high lantern, the metronome beat. And instead, science is something brainy idiots do. Switch channel to the cage fighting. Yeah. You know, okay. So to come back to Breyer, people get very blasé about this stuff because it's like, you know, very quickly the media says, Steve Breyer's retiring, he's a liberal. Joe Biden's Democratic president, he's a liberal. He's gonna pick right. a liberal, nothing will change. And it's like, moving on. I just wanna pause for a moment before we go to the politics of this, right? right. Steve Breyer, 83 years old, I believe, been on the court for quite a long time now. Right. Um, you've seen a lot of Supreme Court justice come and go. Like, mm -hmm. as you said, mark the moment of like, the consequence, what it means when the Supreme Court justice steps down and what it means for a president to have the opportunity, I'm talking about for history, for jurisprudence, right. for the country, right. to be able to make a lifetime appointment that is gonna have a big role, a big voice in American yeah. life for a long time to come. Well, it's a huge appointment, so it always has high stakes, as we would say here in Hollywood, but we're now at the point where it also triggers a corrosive fight even when there shouldn't be one. Right. I mean, the fact that the court is not at stake ideologically because the Democrats have the power to replace a center-left justice with another one, which they will do once we get by all the opera. And that, that's where I, I was on the cable news network that employs both of us, got the fastball question of, it's the end of the world, will there be shooting in the, uh, you know, this is what cable does. Everything's the Hindenburg every day to sell clicks and, yeah. and all that. This doesn't need to be as corrosive as it is. And so it'll spark that fight when maybe there shouldn't be one. And what I like about his tone and Breyer's kind of whole vibe and his record, really, he was pragmatic, let yeah, us yeah, say, yeah. It, is I hope they try to follow in that institutionalist footstep a little bit and not try to find the cleverest way to win the acid-throwing political battle the next three weeks, which could be much ado about nothing. Right. Pride and Breyer on Thursday did that event together. So that's Steve Breyer saying his farewell. And here's what Joe Biden had to say. I will select a nominee worthy of Justice Breyer's legacy of excellence and decency. While I've been studying candidates' backgrounds and writings, I've made no decision except one. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. I made that commitment during the campaign for president and I will keep that commitment. So I asked the question about this, right? Which is of course, the first part is just, is like boilerplate. I will pick someone who's great and popular. Right, I won't pick an idiot or a maniac, right. thank you. But yeah. then, you know, I mean, in this case, unlike most presidents who, who hide the ball more than Biden has, Biden has at least told us one thing, which is he's gonna pick a black woman. Right. right. Did you think it was smart for him to make that commitment during the campaign as a matter of politics and a matter of civics? Mm -hmm. And what do you think now that he's actually faced with the implications of it? What do you think the implications of it are? Like how you have to think about it from the context. It was clearly, it's a political commitment. He made a political commitment right. in the campaign when he was in trouble. Again, was that smart or not? But now he has to live with it. Right. Oh, look, I think it was politics smart and it was historically smart because he's breaking a wall. 
I think presidentially, it's never smart to pre-promise anything. Right. He said the same thing with, I'll pick a running mate you know, of color. Good, historic, understand. But I never let presidents box themselves in. But look, it's, it's a historic rationale. And we're also in a time in our culture where nobody's of a mind to debate these kind of things beyond identity. Yeah. So yeah, I think the key is, will he pick a highly qualified jurist? I'm sure he will. The people being talked about all appear to be pretty qualified. I'm no expert in that. And then you get to the politics of it, which is always there. How will he do this in a way that enhances his political situation and that of his party, which are in trouble right now, versus stumble? Yeah. And there is a way to politically stumble with one of these appointments. What would that be? In this well, case, what, I, what I would, would think it would be the kind of surprising Biden affliction that I don't think many of us expected. He ran in the primaries as kind of the reasonable center left. I'm not Bernie, no crazy ideas here. Then he got very ambitious when he got here with a majority, a partisan majority in the House and Senate, but not an ideological majority, you know, Manchin Joe. Yeah. So I wouldn't swing too far in the progressive direction so the Republicans can crank up their band about to fund the police, wild-eyed jurist. I, you know, Judge uh, Brown Jackson has already been confirmed with three Republican votes. When in doubt, if you can bunt a double yeah. and make history, yeah. there's nothing wrong with doing that, Joe. But I have a feeling ambition may take over again. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm going to be FDR 30 days in, and we see where that got him. He's now in real political trouble. So I hope they're smart about this. And I also hope they take a little bit of the buyer inspiration to get somebody who also has that unifying tone to them and is not going to be the angriest dissenter in the world. Because that'll please his ideological base, but it won't do much for the institution, which like all our democratic institutions is under attack right now. These court discussions don't seem to be about interesting, thoughtful debates on constitutional law. They're our team, your team. Right. And that's not good. We would both concede that we are not lawyers. Let's Thank God. Like yeah. I'm from a family of lawyers. I was going to say, yeah. instead of rather concede, we would both yeah. boast. We would both say proudly right. that we're not lawyers. We would also say that we you know a little bit about this because we cover politics and, right. we, and we know some of these people by at least what we've read about them. There's zero doubt in your mind, zero, none, nil, that there's a qualified African-American woman that like Joe Biden can both fulfill the promise of making history totally. and find multiple, multiple black, black women yeah, jurists, yeah, yeah. they're around. Right? Which itself is not enough, right. but good news for the country. Yes. That it's not like he has to stretch to do this. I'll play one more speech now. I'll let a little sound happy right now. But play Josh Hawley, just because it goes directly to your point. This is what Josh Hawley is saying about this immediately and how the Republicans are clearly going to frame this thing. Here's Josh. And it's a real moment of truth for Joe Biden. He's deeply unpopular. He's been the most divisive president of my lifetime. Now he's got a choice. Is he going to nominate a pro-America, pro-Constitution justice, or is he going to keep doing what he's been doing and divide this country with a hard, woke left activist? We're about to find out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's almost a self-parody. He Go ahead. I say almost, a fully a self-parody, but yeah. also just like a walking, talking illustration of bad faith. Yeah. There is no one Joe Biden picks that Josh Hawley will not call no, a woke, no. la a woke yeah. left activist, yeah. right? You you are a good faith Republican, or mm -hmm. maybe a former Republican, I don't really know what you are right now, but, but when you say I like someone who's, who's not a woke left person, there are plenty of Democrats yeah. who'd be like, Stephen Breyer. Right. But there's no doubt that Josh Hawley would call Stephen Breyer a far left activist right. who were nominated again tomorrow, right? No, no. These culture war guys just want to throw you know more logs on the fire to right. see how hot they can make it. But this is my, leads to my political question, which is, if you're Joe Biden and you know that pretty much the entirety of the Republican Party is going to call your pick a woke left activist, right. no matter who you pick. Right. Like, why would you not be thinking about among the range of qualified right. black women, jurists right. who could be on the court, why would you not pick one that would 
have a higher likelihood of animating the African-American base, for instance, than a less of one. Why, why not put some politics well, in if, that if you're going to get trashed anyway by the right? Well, if you believe that equation, yeah. that African-American voter is going to be driven by the woke leftiness of this pick, I, I reject that. I don't think so. Right. I think what you want to do is deny the Republicans oxygen. Because there's a Republican quiet political debate going on. Yeah. Some of these senators are saying, look, he's going to make history. It's not going to change the court. And he's going to win. So do we want to give him four weeks of energizing his world? Yeah. Or do we want to get back to inflation and the stuff that can win the midterms for us? So why don't we make two weeks of defund the cops noise, particularly if they make the mistake of giving us somebody we can attack that way. Biden's smart, he'll not give them that. And then we're gonna move on to the stuff that'll win the election. Other Republicans, particularly those who are imagining Donald Trump not running or some national political agenda, which is about a dozen of these cats, yeah. including Ollie, are thinking, how can I put on my patent hat and get right in the middle of the culture war and move primary voters? Right. And so that's the tension inside. What's good for getting Republican majorities is to play it smart, have a little ideological complaint, and move on. Right. But, you know, in that caucus now, it ain't what it used to be. There are a lot of those uh, culture arsonists who would love to have a big fight about this and please primary voters. I accept the point, uh, and, and I didn't really mean to make a complete equation of this, but the notion that, like, the best political pick, if you just put on a political lens, the best political pick, if your goal was to energize African-Americans, who we know from polling, Biden right. now has a problem with, right? They think he hasn't done shit for them. Right. There's been lots of discussion of it. It's part of the reason why he went down to Atlanta and did the voting rights speech in Georgia, right? right. Trying to like kind of get back with voters that the party needs and that he needs, right? right. If you accept it, I, I accept the notion that, that necessarily the best political pick wouldn't necessarily be the most woke left picked. But right. do talk about this question. Like, I have some question per se among that voting group, whether mm -hmm. any Supreme Court pick is gonna be the thing that's gonna drive. But right. if you have a problem with black voters, which he does, right. is anyone gonna, any pick in this way gonna solve it or do you need to do other things to try to solve that problem, which is a real problem? Right, I think they have a lot of things to do and they're not all about ideology. They're about getting a win on the poll. Right. Yeah. Biden's big problem right now is looking weak in perception and politics, perception is reality. Though I will say I am a huge contrarian on this and I've been for 20 years. We used to in the Republican Party, oh, you got to please the base. You don't please the base, they won't show up. Base always shows up. I cannot empirically find a year where we had a tragic drop off in Republican voters. You call them the base because they're always for you. And the biggest problem both parties have now, and it's part of the polarization, is, and the echo chamber reinforces this, we have to treat our base voters like swing voters. The secret to elections is understanding in, in a competitive place yeah. that if you're always vote Republican or Democrat voters, go to the polls a little ticked off because of things you did to get voters you don't always get, yeah. that's a winning campaign. If your voters skip to the polls with joy, that vote doesn't count twice. It's yes, just right. one vote. <laughs> and so stressing the base a bit to get swing voters, I built my whole career doing that in blue states for governors. So that's been lost now and it gives the potentates of the base, those interest groups, great power to say, you know, our people aren't happy. I guarantee you, if the Republicans win the midterms, it won't be because African-Americans decide to vote Republican to punish Joe Biden. Yeah. The question will be turnout, and that is driven more by demography and the on-year, off-year. On-year presidential, you well know, huge turnout. Off-year, yeah. not so much. Yeah. And that's gonna have less to do with the ideological scale of the justice. Now, the fact that he's making history of African-American woman, that is good. It'll yeah. engender good feelings. But if he does it right, he'll get something bigger, right. which is a nice, clean win, yes, right. which is what the guy is dying for politically.
So Ukraine, right? The, yep. the other big story of last week, you know, you, you and I haven't talked about Biden's press conference, right? How big a fuck up on a scale of one to 10 do you think that the minor incursion, yeah. then try to clean it up, then have to put out a statement, all that stuff that happened, how, right. how in any consequential way or just like a flap in yeah. a... Tea, well, tea, tea, like, a tempest in a teapot, a flap in a teapot. I don't know, like whatever. In the old days, it would have been pretty deadly. Yeah. I mean, remember Jerry Ford and the Free Nation of Poland in 76. Although you know. that wasn't the middle of the presidential campaign, it had a presidential debate. So. Right, true. So the stakes were higher yeah, and the right. spotlight yeah. was on. But that yeah. thing went on forever. Yeah. But now, I think we're the lobster in the pot after Trump, after Clinton, after all the stretching we've had of the presidency. No moral equivalence there. Trump is worse. But, boy, we can take a lot. And there was a counter narrative. That press conference had been 14 minutes long. Yeah. Then the Ukraine thing would have blown up huge. He's senile, he doesn't know what day it is, he doesn't know. Right. The fact he got up there and batted away with all his Biden-esque flaws and trip, but yeah. he, he did it. Yeah. it. It kind of ameliorated it a little bit. Yeah. And I'll give them credit. The White House has made a lot of stumbles, but they threw no choice but to do it, have a good fire department. They do, they're really- The next day they were, yeah. that's what they do every day. They clean it and, up. And they, they cleaned it up pretty good. And I, as a, you know, I voted for Biden as a Republican because mm -hmm. I'm so anti-Trump. But I'll give them credit. They have done a good job of ratcheting up the pain yeah. to box in Putin. Now, they got to be careful not to corner him too much. Yeah. It's a tricky game. But if that succeeds, Biden will finally get a big foreign policy win, too, yeah. which has also eluded him with the screw-up on the submarines and the French alliance and Kabul and all the other problems he's had. So... I give them good grades for how they've handled the Putin thing. So you had the press conference, right? And then the cleanup effort. Yep. Then we, the weekend happens. Then we wake up on Monday and you've got the New York Times, you know, Biden right. ways deploying thousands of troops to Eastern Europe and Baltics, New York Times, big, you know. Right. All of a sudden it's like, wait, wait, whoa. Partly because their whole thing has been restrained up to that point, which was, right. let's not ratchet up tension. Right. Let's not be provocative. Even right. that mistake he made was somewhat in the vein of, hey, yeah, it's all going to be yeah. okay. Well, I'm yeah. not trying to flex here. Yeah. I'm not trying to whatever. All yeah. of a sudden, it's like, hey, we might send a bunch of troops in. And right. that like changed the story. And we suddenly had a bunch of discussions. There was, you know, the UN Security Council is going to get involved. There's more troop movements around NATO. Ukraine. Yeah. Like 100,000, there's 100,000, there's even more. Like every 12 hours, it seems like somebody says, we're seeing small, greater buildup by Russia. Like to use the journalistic cliche, tensions right. are mounting. Right. And fears but are mounting. Both sides are doing the classic. I'm not blaming anybody for that. Yeah. I'm just kind of setting the stage for where we are. And then Blinken yeah. gets up and says, time to get everybody the fuck out of there because we might be having right. a hot war soon. Well, yeah, but... Both sides are doing the old classic escalation ladder. Yeah. Putin sends another division to the border. Yeah. We ramp it up. NATO sends some troops. Not there. Nobody wants to fight there. I mean, the full escalation here is Putin invades the Ukraine, and we watch. NATO becomes more unified than ever, which is a loss for Putin, particularly the Baltics and kind of the crescent around there, down to Romania. And uh, then Putin's got his own quagmire. And I think there'll be some chuckling people at CIA and defense saying, God, we get to be on the other side of an insurgent, you know, a, a thing. Let's shift some more landmines into there. Now, it's terrible for the Ukraine. It's terrible for people. Yeah. Thousands and thousands, yeah. way too many innocents will die. But I think Biden is more confident with his escalation ladder. Yeah. It'll never involve American forces fighting in the Ukraine. Right. Then Putin, who if he keeps calling the bluff, is going to go own a hellish situation in Ukraine and economic sanctions. Remember, Russia has the same yeah. GDP as Italy. Yeah. You know, the, roughly approximately your GDP, essentially. <laughs> the Russian GDP and the Murphy GDP are kind of on par at this point. Uh, hardly. Well, in the pre-Trump yeah. days, let's put it that way. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, point is, I think Biden's playing it pretty well. Okay, so that's that's an optimistic take on, yeah. on the national security front, right? 
Here's the politics question that, you know, there's a bunch of complicating factors here, right? One really big complicating factor is the Russia of it all, which, right. you know, I don't even know how to talk about Russia anymore, except the one thing I did, you know, Trump, you know, we went through the Russian collusion narrative that's become a rhetorical minefield yes. and a morass. Right. But it, it is definitely the case that Tucker Carlson, the most popular, powerful Republican conservative media figure. And the most cynical man in the world. And the most cynical man in the world. Those are related. Yeah, I know him. Um, he's an old friend of mine. It's know, unbelievable. He's, he, but he's now like a full-on Putin apologist. Putin I know. Puppet. I On know. Fox News every night, like even the Russian yeah. spies are apparently in the place where like, man, Tucker yeah. is like making an ass yeah. of himself. Yeah. He's going too no, far, right? No, calm down, pal. Too much. And the reason I raise it is this, right? We would agree, I think, that on the merits, on the substance, over the long view, that Biden's Afghanistan withdrawal, it was not a calamity. In the short term, politically, it was terrible, yeah. right? And projected this image of weakness, irresolution. Right. The pictures from the, from the Kabul airport were horrible, right? Now we have this other situation playing out here in which people are looking at Biden. And to get to the prism how people look at these things, politics, yeah. are you tough? Are you strong? Are you commanding as a leader, right? What did you see as the political risks for Biden? And like, you're talking about escalation ladders that make a lot of sense to me. Number one, political risks and political opportunities in this. Right. And number two, how does that weird thing that's happened on the right that I was alluding to a second ago, where like what Republican now is like, we must be as tough as possible on Vladimir Putin anymore. It's like, it doesn't really seem to be the Republican orthodoxy you know, anymore. I disagree a little with that. In the Senate, they're they're pretty right. Tucker's off in his I'm own I'm talking world. about the country though. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, it used to be that was like the, the benchmark was right. if you were a Republican in America, you were tough on Russia. And right. then you elected Donald Trump. Right. And so, now you have Tucker Carlson as your hero. Yeah. I don't really get how no, you can be like the Republicans on this. Elect a guy who's got a man crush on the dictator of North Korea. I mean, it it is bizarro world. Right. But you gotta be careful when you make foreign policy to follow public opinion too much, because it lags reality. Be careful not to follow public opinion too much. Be careful not to. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I mean, the big idea was let Hitler have Europe. You know, the New York Times was writing favorably about the Munich Olympics and how efficient it all was. Yeah. So you, you gotta be careful <laughs> of this stuff. Bottom line, if Biden looks strong yeah. and Putin either backs down or in the longer term gets in a quagmire, in the short term, that would be bad for Biden if he invades. Oh, you lost Ukraine. Long term will be a huge pain for Putin. It'll unify NATO. A lot of good stuff could happen. Though we're against it because nobody should die. Right. Point is, I think, there are a lot more scenarios that make Biden a strong president, which is what he needs right. here, yes. than not. Right. So if I were Biden, I, I think he's handling that well. His real political problem, though, because as you say, people would be charitable, are confused about this. Right. You know, it's not the old bad Russians, Tucker's right. telling them they're great. You yeah. know, it's back to the domestic stuff yeah. where he has got to get something going. He's been in a quagmire now for 10 months. Now, I find this man beyond, almost beyond the pale. But uh, I'm going to play Lindsey Graham right now, only because I think it is in this instance, I do think this is, again, in the way the Hawley thing is basically what the Republicans are going to say about Breyer. Right. Lindsey is as pure a distillation of what the Republican view about the situation in Ukraine is on the political right. front. Here's Lindsey. Joe Biden has been a wrecking ball when it comes to national security all of his friggin' life. Now he's commander in chief. He does a two hour rambling news conference, incoherent mostly, and he makes an odd statement a minor invasion would be, will, will be met one way, a minor incursion, versus a full-on invasion. What did they say in the Ukraine? One inch is too much. So Biden is, is being taken advantage of. 
Biden's being taken yeah. advantage of, and Joe Biden's been a wrecking ball his whole career. That's yeah. like, well, now, we'll forget about Lindsay's inconsistencies on Trump, and we'll forget about him weeping over Joe Biden, what a great guy he was on, right. on video right. not that long ago. Right. But he's been a wrecking ball his whole career. Yeah. Fine. That's the kind of the Republican position, right? And they are, again, in a bad faith way, I would say. Whatever happens in Ukraine yeah. is going to be Joe Biden was a wrecking ball in national right. security and, and is being taken advantage of. Yeah. What's the way you, in addition to the, the substance, which is, you know, win the escalation wet ladder, come out with a good substantive outcome. Right. What's the way you deal with that as a matter of public perception, a matter of politics, if you're President Biden? Well, look, the Republicans, and Lindsey's such a tragic figure. He, he's become a litigator without a soul. It's just cleverness for, for its own sake. You know, you should have a police radio going behind him. You know, you pay him, he'll defend anything. And I'd, I've known him 20 years, and it still amazes me, that evolution. As far as what Biden ought to do, remember, squabbling of the Lindsey Grahams of the world, that gets lost to most people. That's Washington politicians yeah. fighting. He's the president. He's got the big microphone. Needs to use it. He ought to do an address to the nation and explain what's going on in, in the Ukraine, how it affects our values and our security, and what we're doing about it. Go on a little offense. I think there's something about Biden, the master legislator, allegedly, that has hobbled his ability to understand how to use the presidency. Right. And so I'd use the big microphone, I'd frame the debate, and I'd retreat the lenses of the world, his angry little chihuahuas there who never had the job, never could get the job, tried, failed, hmm. and don't really know what they're talking about. And tried and failed and got beat by Donald Trump in the process. I have two questions about News of Week. One thing that's definitely going to Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. We talked about the Supreme Court earlier. Yep. Affirmative action, where the court right. decided they're going to take a case, get a case next year, challenging the Harvard and University of North Carolina, I think, uh, uh, affirmative action slash race-based admissions programs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, given where the court is right now, mm -hmm. it looks an awful lot to a lot of people like this is maybe the end of affirmative action education, number one. Number two, the Alabama redistricting thing. Federal court comes in and says, right. nope, this redistricting plan is bad, this Republican right. one. Got to make two black majority districts, basically. And Republicans are like a little nervous about that. They're like, you know, that mm -hmm. a lot of other states that could happen in, right. also probably going to the Supreme Court. Just right. talk about each one of those things. And one's a, like a mechanical thing, but redistricting matters a lot. The others right. are because a huge culture war possibilities, right. depending on what the court, it will right. actually kind of matter what the court does. It's going to make people are going to make right. a lot of noise about it. Talk about those two things well, and why I, they're they matter. They're both legitimate issues yeah. the court ought to talk about. Yeah. You know, that's what we're forgetting about the court. Everything is one yeah. team and another. I can make a good argument on either side of affirmative action, frankly, constitutional argument. Yeah. The redistricting thing is tricky because you have such a high correlation between African-American voters and Democrats. Yes. It's about 90%. So when you're trying to write lines, and just talking now in the world of what ought to be, do you care about creating more competitive districts? Because right now we only have a 30 left in the country. So everybody's captive to their primary voters and to the organizations that control primary voters. You know, public employee unions on one side, conservative groups on the other. So do we want to open that up and have 100 swing districts like we used to? I don't think that's a bad aim. Yeah. But when you draw the lines trying to get majority black districts, majority yeah. minority districts, that can be subverted because you put all the Democratic districts in the same place. And we find in state redistricting battles in the smoke-filled room, sometimes the African-American Democratic politicians will make a deal with the all-too-happy-to-accommodate-them Republicans yeah. to create more black districts but less Democratic districts. Yeah, right, sure. So there are cross-incentives here. I tend to believe, and I'll now get myself canceled for life, so this will be my last podcast. Oh, looking forward to yeah, this. Here we go. Someone called the woke police, Mike Murphy, about to make a controversial statement. He only does this every three or four days, but go ahead, Mike. <laughs> 
You're uh, uncancelable at this point. You're like the, oh, I believe me. You're like um, the atomic cockroach. Like a nuclear war <laughs> won't kill you. Well, you. Trump couldn't get me, so that's a good sign. I'm a Mark Lilla acolyte on this. He's a Columbia professor, mm. tenured, which is why he's still there. Wrote a great book a few years ago, The Once and Future Liberal, yeah. going after identity politics from the left. And when we define our politics totally through identity and grievance, and dare I say it, even intersectionalism, which is the latest, in my view, bad idea mm. on the rise. That's a good, that's a big word for you. I, I had to check it twice okay. on Google. Yeah. Um, we're making a mistake. Yeah. Lilla's great argument is that the Republicans, good or bad, always campaign on a unified idea. Shining city on the hill, yeah. make America great again, whatever. Yeah. The Democrats, and this is true, you go to the last couple of Democratic presidential campaigns, you go to the homepage on the theory of what they choose to put there as a good yeah. tell, and you go down, you'll find a cartoon of every kind of hyphenated American there is. Right. We are a nation of groups. Yeah. And each group has a grievance, and so then you're in a big education of which grievance has to be overcome first, and you go down that, that world. And it allows cheap demagogues like Trump, who are not afraid to be racist, frankly, right. to say, all right, it's a contest of groups. White people, we need a group. And it's very corrosive and all that. So I like the Iowa system because they have a lot of competitive districts. Yeah. Now, there aren't a lot of African Americans in Iowa, so they don't bump into that other goal. And so the balance of which goal is more important is a legit debate. And, you know, I... I don't think the court is partisan. That's the problem now. People presume it's a partisan yeah. court. It's an ideologically conservative court, which aligns. Yeah. But I don't think they sit around saying, all right, what's the worst thing we can do to Democrats? Maybe I'm naive, but I don't believe that. I enjoy in the, the fact that you're able to find one liberal tenured professor somewhere who you're like, he's attacking a love. No, 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 no. You're, you're Rita's There's book. There's my you're, guy, Rita, Willa. He's my guy. We had him out to USC, and yeah. it was an incredible discussion. He, he's very impressive, and I agree with his theory. I'm just giving you shit. Well, shocker there. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Mike Murphy on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. This is a Mike Murphy at like 11 years old talking about the nature of political advertising. I want to, I want you oh, to see God. this. You're going to look at it and go, who is that good looking young man whose knees work? He was a lot poorer than me. But he's much handsomer. Why, why do you think I'm like a billionaire oligarch? Yeah, I've done a search yeah. of your real estate holdings. What you have to remember about advertising is kind of like plumbing. It carries something. It carries a message. Message is the key thing, the theme that will motivate people to support a candidacy. The advertising has to be efficient. You have to keep up with everything else for people to pay attention. Um, we're all here sitting in a conference room talking about politics on a technical nuts and bolts level where all the same people are out doing interesting things on this nice day today. We're different. We, we have much more interest in politics than the average voter. Yeah, so talking all, about political hacks. Look at how... When look, I had hair. Look at how, yeah, seriously, look how young you were there. I look like Buddy Hackett's younger brother. You, well, yeah, I'm not sure who... Nobody in this room knows who Buddy Hackett is. That's okay. That's okay. That's good. They no should one, learn. That's, but here's... I have a number of things to say there. First of all, political advertising is like plumbing. It carries something, and then you go on to say something. Message. Yeah. I said, plumbing, as you know, in a home often carries... Fresh water. Fresh water in and, yeah. and uh, waste I out. know where you're going. Yeah, you know where I'm going. So that's the first thing I'd say. You were right on right on there. The other thing was like, all you people in this room are fucking weirdos. You're not like the people out there. It was. Normal. It, it, it was political consultants. I know. Yeah. Truest thing I've ever heard Afraid you say. Afraid of daylight. I yeah. thought that was a great insight on your part in that thing. I never asked you, I think in the million conversations I have with you, I've never asked you how you got into this business. Like you grew up in Detroit. I know that. Right. And what made you decide? Democratic you were, family. Well, My grandfather was elected municipal 
municipal politician, Judge Joe Murphy in the old Wayne County machine. So yeah. I grew up around it. Drunk Irishman, basically. Uh, well, <laughs> Not that drunk. Okay. Um, uh, so, a sober yeah. Irishman. Now you're canceled. Uh, our people are tired of these smears. The first sober Irish Democratic politician in the history of Michigan. We, uh, we ran that town. So I was always interested in politics and really in theater and film and yeah. international affairs. So I yeah. went off to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service to fight the Soviets. Yeah. And uh, I was in college Republicans, but I also love the performance theater of politics. Yeah. So one thing led to another, and I got an internship at the National Conservative PAC, NICPAC, which pioneered the independent expenditure back then. Yeah. Oh, keep your liberal Manhattan smirk under control. We did a lot of cool stuff back then. Beginning of the end for our democracy. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, hardly, hardly. And they had, didn't have anybody to make TV ads. Yeah. And so I said, I'll do it. Yeah. I had worked at a radio station for one day. <laughs> and I found this expert ad producer, yeah. a couple of years older than me, who turns out had made one ad named Alex Castellanos. Mm. And one thing led to another, and as Alex used to joke, we went out and tried to invent advertising. And that got so interesting, I took a leave of absence my senior year. I was a Russian area studies major. Uh, I knew Putin was coming back Your senior, year of, back senior year of college. Yeah, yeah, yeah in Georgia. Yeah. And uh, went off to work on a campaign for a congressman who couldn't win, so nobody would work for him. Yeah. And with some somewhat legitimate, yet young and irresponsible radio advertising, we won. And now my phone's ringing. Could you give me one small example of like, what, what about legitimate but young and irresponsible? Like just as that kind of illustrative So it was example. the fish tail of Long Island, the old first district, Suffolk yeah. County. Kind of a machine vibe out there. Mm -hmm. And the boss a few years before had gotten all the acolytes together and said, all right, who's married an Irish Catholic? Stand up. Not you, Louie, you've been to jail. What's your name? Carney. It was a guy named Bill Carney, got elected to Congress. Yeah. Well, they were building the Shoreham nuclear power plant, which, shocker, was a bit unfavorable, and Carney, being a courageous visionary leader, was for it. Mm. Also, the local organization cared a lot about building contracts, I, I would assume. Yeah. So he's running for re-election in 84. Yeah. It's a swing district, tilts a little R, but he had a primary based on Shoreham. He only won it by 50 votes. Yeah. So our opponent, who eventually got elected to Congress, a guy named Hockbruckner, a state senator, was running against us and winning. We had money, but we had the Shoreham problem. Yeah. So I said, well, jeepers, we have all this money. Why don't we run radio in the New York market? And they said, you're crazy, kid. It hits 43 congressional districts. I said, yeah, including the one we're losing it. Yeah. So we ran a couple of commercials and did a lot of mail. The mail had a map with circles if there was an atomic disaster, how many minutes to yeah. your house. Yeah. The ads were, we stopped this program for a test of the Shoreham emergency evacuation system. In case of a real emergency at Shoreham and its deadly atomic pile, you will have that. This is only, you know, make-believe. But it could happen because George Hockbruckner, our esteemed opponent as a state senator, voted to bail out the Shoreham plant and activate its deadly atomic pile. He was for it too. Nobody knew. So we flattened him on that, and Carney won. So, and my phone starts ringing. Basically, like you ran, you decided to, to demagogue Nuclear power. Nuclear accident. I like nuclear, nuclear power. Nuclear, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. No, no, no. The like demagogue nuclear, nuclear power yeah. from the right in order to... Like, I had an, I kind of I kind of love this. Like you were basically like at the no nukes concert for one day essentially I, in order to be I had an that honorable out. leader from Congress who had had an esteemed career as an aluminum siding salesman who <laughs> was being challenged by a demographic demagogue who was hiding the fact he'd actually voted on the record to turn Shoreham on to pay off their yeah, bonds. Yeah. They were bankrupt, the Long Island Electric Company. Yeah. So we thought the voters ought to know to make yeah. an informed decision. Always, now, yes. the creative legend has there were two or three you know, people were driving and veered off, you know, a couple of minor fender benders. 
but it broke through. Yes. And the mail. Yeah. And Kearney worked hard, and he fit the district pretty well. And it was the '84 year, so we were able to get him out of trouble and win. But then, next thing I know, your phone's um, ringing off the hook. My phone's ringing off the hook. Yes, yeah. and but, I'm still in college, by the way. But you wonder why the the reputation that you had as a young man for being let, let me let me just say these words. All right. I, none, All right. none of these I think you're going to take exception to. Yeah. I think people when you were young, people thought you were creative. That you were, you were willing to, to to push the envelope in terms of like doing stuff that was novel. Yeah, like I were, didn't like boxes. I always wanted to try to come yeah, around from the yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were kind of like an innovator. You were you were young. You were brash. You were an innovator. But you also people thought you were. I wasn't shy the, about negative campaigns. Right, you were a practitioner of the dark arts. People were like, right. he's a hatchet man, but he's you know young and clever and smart. And you were yeah. very '80s. I had the like, suits with the. Yeah, yeah, yeah so you yeah, worked yeah. like a, what's the the what's the uh, the Brady Snellis book, uh, American Psycho, <laughs> with Patrick Bateman. You were kind of like that era of like well, flashy young Republican. You know, political consultants. What, what happens I at the zenith of Reagan, willing with, to cut everybody's balls off on yeah, the process? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit's kind of a persona. I mean, a little you know, bit. Well, no, no. Carville's doing. You know, the the rage and Cajun. There's kind of a shtick then. But let, let me make the point about yes. looking back. Yeah. A lot of it's not unlike Hollywood. So if you're a young, smart guy and you actually get involved because you understand strategy and get yeah. a little lucky, you can. If you can put creative execution and good strategy together, it, it can be effective in politics. Right. So now you're a young guy or woman, you've shown you've got that monkey trick. So people say, look, we don't care if he's, you know, out snorting coke around the clock or whatever. Pay him for the monkey trick. It'll solve our problem. We'll make a big movie. We'll have a hit TV show, a hit record. We'll we'll get our knucklehead out of trouble in the congressional race. And so that is not a frequent story among young people who break through as consultants in politics. But then you had the whole 80s thing, which added to it. Plus, then, trust me, trust me. There's nothing better to watch than a monkey doing a monkey trick while on cocaine. It's like the, oh, I've run that experiment many times. It's a delightful. I, I, you've been in the flesh pots of New York. I'm sure you've seen thing. everything. I just, I like just um, a monkey, like the monkeys. But, but my, yeah, my point is the analogy of useful skills. So yeah. indulge them. Right. But then, if you got any brains and any compass, you kind of evolve a little right. from yeah. that. You're also like a young well, doctor. You want to fucking operate. Well, again, you made robust defenses of negative advertising, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a second. But you did that. But you made your, your bones, as you pointed out earlier, right? Mm-hmm. The things that made the Murphy real rep and started to, mm-hmm. started to bring in big-time clients and big-time dough was winning gubernatorial races in blue states with right. Republican governors, right? right? John Engler in Michigan, Christy Whitman in New Jersey, Tommy Thompson Wisconsin. Right. These were like your, like in the early phase of your career were the marquee right. races. You were known as the guy who could elect the right kind of Republican in a blue state for right. governor. You kind of built a franchise around that, right? Yeah, I mean, I learned two things quickly coming up strategically. One is, if you could get an incumbent, this is my, my first thing pre that, was incumbent members of Congress in trouble. Yeah. Because most of them would sit around like a turtle and watch the poll close and then die. Yeah. I said, you got more money and you got a name. If you run like a challenger and you give them the heart attack, yeah. that would work. The second thing is, when in doubt, it's always better to fight in the other guy's end zone. Right. Because, you know, you're just naturally in a better place. And that was always the case in those swing states. Yeah. You know, oh, you can't talk about education. That's a democratic issue. Yeah, but if we take it away from them, they got nothing. Yeah. Can we? Do we have the ammo? Do we have the candidate who can talk that way? Jeb in 98. Everybody said, oh, you're probably got to talk about crime. No, no. If we take education away from the Dems, we're going to get crime. We're going to get taxes for free. We got them. And with Jeb, we had a candidate who cared more about education right. than anything else, so it worked. But, it, you know, it was very unorthodox. Yes, that was yes. always my reputation that yeah. I was... Mad scientist. 
So you've got these races going, you're winning these gubernatorial races, you're doing Senate races, you're getting more and more successful. You, you, had, you had a little brush with the 88 Dole campaign for president, I believe. You were like, I was like his a, first like a, and in, like fourth an consultant, I think. Yeah, right. But I love Dole. I got to work with him. I, I am a huge Bob Dole fan, always have. And you had a little bit of a brush with Herbert Walker Bush in 92, right? They were a little slight mild. No, we, Alex and I were in that for real. We worked for Ailes. Okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. okay. To the point of like being the guy was Lamar in 96, right? That was when you became That was like, the first president. In the presidentials, I always was romantic about dark horses. Yes. Because I figured in, if you're the front runner in a presidential plaid, campaign. And plaid, apparently, in 96. Yeah, everybody goes for the plaid joke. I'll give you the backstory. Dude, the, plaid was kind of, the plaid was a little bit omnipresent. It's kind yeah. of hard. I'm still, I still have like acid flashbacks about we Lamar in so plan. close with Lamar. That's what nobody understands. Did you really? Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. How close? Did you ever come in third, above third in any primary? From one percent to almost beating Bob. I'm, I'm telling I, you, I was I'm, there. I know what. I know what. I was, I was there too. I'd be like, yeah, yeah you never. We didn't no, win no, primary. You were at the Dole in. campaign he, writing. Uh, he didn't, I was for Pat Buchanan. <laughs> well, that, that <laughs> was. Uh, I bet you want that time back. At least he won the New Hampshire primary. But then we crushed him in Michigan with the famous Mercedes ad okay. that was filmed in Tyson's Corner, Virginia paid off the mechanic to get it on a Sunday so we could get the, you know, it's America first in his political speeches, foreign made car in his driveway. I don't think I've ever and I had to fight to get him to put that ad on Michigan. I literally had to hide the dubs in a garage of a buddy of mine in Detroit before I could get him to move and then that killed him off. I don't think I've ever told you this story, but I'll tell it very quickly yeah. because I want to get to McCain in 2000 because right. I think there's a, a thing to talk about there. I will say that literally my favorite experiences ever in a pres covering a presidential campaign was being with Pat Buchanan after the New Hampshire primary. He was in Georgia and there was the Arizona primary where he lost narrowly, showed right. up in Georgia, kind of crushed Mm -hmm. Went to, there's one of those uh, textile towns in Georgia that I can't remember the name, big rug town that makes rugs. Yeah, yeah, it's um, northeast uh, Georgia. Uh, I can't remember the name of the town. Yeah, 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 I know uh, exactly. But going to a rug right. factory with Pat Buchanan and having him walk through the rug factory and look around and see an Oriental rug on the wall and go look up and go, and bright, face bright, yeah. Pat, populist Pat, pitchfork Pat, working class hero, looked up at the rug and said, oh, those are the rugs that they have at the Ritz-Carlton. And it was like a fantastic yeah. moment. I, was like, I got one real fast Lamar and Pat Buchanan story. You're okay. never going to believe from 95. So we were kind of the dull backup regular Republican, yeah. young reformer governor of yeah. Tennessee. Pat was Pat. And so the public personas, was, they, you know, they didn't really plan, but very opposite. Yeah. But when the lights went off, how do you think Pat Buchanan got a ride back to D.C.? On Lamar's jet. On our plane. Yeah. Because as young men, they've yeah. been buddies in the White House right. together. Yeah, and sense. out came the martinis and the oh, Nixon boy. stories were yeah. incredible. Yeah. I'm certain that's true. Now, no, no planes of that kind on McCain 2000. I want to only this because I think this clip, the Steve Carell Daily Show clip, it also features Mike Murphy in it, when Steve Carell went out on the road to get on the Straight Talk Express. He never would break character. We were uh, all trying to get him. I, wanted you, I want you to see this only because, again, we get to see Mike Murphy here, and it's always one of my, my goals is to have the young Mike Murphy photos as much as possible so we can see the contrast. Oh, Lord. Take a whiff of that. One whiff of the overflow bus and Mrs. McCain was on my side. And Stick actually, with me, I'll get you on. Really? Come on, let's go. Really? Not only was I finally on the bus, but I was going to get the chance to talk to Senator John McCain. Right. Sir, how are now, you? Look, you, let me you are welcome on our bus at any time. Let's do a lightning round. Okay. Your favorite book? For whom the bell tolls. Favorite movie? Viva Zapata. Charlton Heston. Uh, Marlon Brando. Close enough. If I were a tree, I would be a... If I were a tree, I would be a... root. What does that mean? <laughs> I can go on all day with these. 
That was a fun day, I, I remember. The original plan was stick him in the back of the press right. bus with yeah. Bangladesh TV. He, I think he was for no, most no, of it. No, the no, of well, yeah, but then yeah. it was all, you know, that, okay, we sent Cindy back, it was all yeah. pro wrestling. It was all, it was all worked out. But he, off camera, because we knew who he was, yeah, and we were joking around with him, he was really nervous, and yeah. he, he would not break character. character. Now, the other guy went undercover on the bus and fooled us for a day before Salter figured out who he was, showed up, he was in the khakis and blue blazer and you know the Washington Post uniform. Yeah. And he had his hair tight in a ponytail and horn rims. It was David Foster Wallace. <gasps> right. Oh, yes, yes, sorry. And yeah. then we figured it out, and I was admiring some of his writing, and we became good friends after that. Yeah. I wouldn't say good friends. We had dinner a bunch of times in that as a character. But we we thought he was a member of the press corps for a whole day. I raised it because McCain was your guy. Yeah, you, know, I you were. Him. I mean, there, he had a lot of different consultants around him, a lot of different friends, a lot of different factions. As we know, that became a kind of nightmare in two thousand eight. But in two thousand, like that campaign was like the most romantic example. And the Straight Talk Express was kind of a, right. you know, I mean, reporters loved it, for, and that's yeah. part of why you guys did it. From the cynical, we point used to of view, call you guys our base. Yeah. Uh, yes, but it was something to see somebody, and you see it there, which was McCain was just game, you know, right. not uh, blow dried, not prepackaged, not afraid to make mistakes. He would sit there with reporters for hours on that fucking bus and talk to people. People, right. people who are younger kind of find it hard to believe there was everything well, like this. McCain but it was had, kind of like your main innovation, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, straight talk, it was true to his character. But the notion of having a bus where he would run, we would operate a rolling press conference for the national press, right. basically for all the daylight hours, was right. a Murphy innovation. Well, I, there were others, you know, John Weaver, others were around. But what happened was we knew there was no force on earth that would change McCain. Yeah. So we had one kind of rocket fuel. And if we tried to run the regular campaign with the three by five, he'd eat the three by, it was never gonna work. And we had a guy who was credentialed by life experience outside of politics. Yeah. And, and an interesting cat who had the mentality of why not. Yeah. And you know, of course we were gonna lose, we were way behind, you know, we were the interesting guy. So why not bottle it and be super authentic and stand apart? Yeah. And you know, the, we lit the rocket fuel and it went up. And so that's kind of what happened, but it, oh, it was tremendous fun. Now occasionally, McCain had enough mischief in him. Yeah. I remember yeah. once we, you know, we were the totally transparent thing, which is about 90% true, but we had a debate coming up in New Hampshire. And so the press is all like, hey, come on, you know, can we see debate prep? Mm. So I went to McCain and I said, all right, look, we're going to feed the beast here. What do you mean? We're going to let him in debate prep. Oh, I don't, no, no, we're going to let him in debate prep. So we did a whole kabuki theater thing. Damn it, Murphy, I'm not going to pander to anybody. He throws a card away and, you know, Nobody could tame McCain. And so that, then we had the real debate prep later. <laughs> Give me the card back. Do you think, as you look back on that, would it work again? Is there a world? I mean, things are so... Hell yes. Authenticity always works right. if you've got the guy. Nothing's worse than somebody doing fake authenticity. Right. You know, Josh Hawley. Let me get to know but me. But you guys, let me put it this way. Yeah. Part of the thing was, even though 2000, okay, it's now 22 years ago, yeah. dating both of us terribly, yeah, but it was another era, right? There were no cell phone cameras. There was no yeah. Twitter. There was none of that, right? right. Yeah, yeah, you guys had the press corps on the bus right. who would listen to him talk all day. He could make mistakes, right. but they still filed once a day. They wrote a story maybe once a day, maybe right. not tweeting yeah. what the person's saying, not being able to like put the live right. video on the air, right? So I, I, I'm not, that's not to diminish the chances you guys were taking. You guys were taking right. real risks in that moment. Right. Other candidates and we had were more bad days. Other yeah. You had bad days and other candidates were more buttoned down. But now the world, the media world that people live in is so much right. more unforgiving. And that's right. kind of why I asked the question. Authenticity would work, but one of the things McCain decided in 2008 was that by 2008, the world had changed so much that he couldn't right. be the old McCain. Can anybody get away with that now? Or is the risk just too high that any small mistake you make would just be amplified well, to the point where it would destroy you? 
I don't know. I think somebody should try, right. the right somebody. In 2008, and I talked to McCain a lot about this beforehand. I said, the problem is your start as the front runner, which is the most un-McCain campaign ever, but that's the price you pay for being the front runner. It'll have to be different. And he was never quite as comfortable with it. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think people are craving some authenticity. And I think, yeah, even though there are all the nibblers around and Twitter journalism, you know, one of the problems is back in the McCain day, the press corps was older and more experienced. Yes. So they'd seen a lot. Yeah. And that made him interesting. Now they're kids with editors saying post every two minutes who basically read each other's Twitter feeds. Right. And, you know, look, I was a political kid. I get it. But they, they don't necessarily have that filter of experience. So it's harder because it's all micro gotcha. Well, Still, I think yes. you could rise above it and do a little bit of the old Don Rumsfeld thing, which yeah. is, you know, never accept the premise of the negative report. One of the things that's true, I think, is that that thing about, about experience, like I, you know, was on that bus and McCain had bad days. Yeah. But there were also plenty of times when reporters were like, McCain would say something, you're like, he, he's tired, he didn't mean that. You wouldn't be like, no, you're right. And not because people were trying to cover up for him, but you're like, I've been with the guy eight, eight hours. I've right. heard him answer this question eight times. Right. The first seven times he answered it right. with what he really means. The eighth time he fucked it up, and I'm not gonna like hang him out there. I'm not gonna but you're, you're gonna balance the weight of everything you heard because he gave you the yes. four hour daily press conference. Yeah, well, correct. And you knew what McCain's record was One guy did, years. a New York Times guy came up, yeah. and McCain had a male problem, going to Kirkpatrick, yeah. who's gone on to a good career there. Yeah. But he was new on the bus. Yeah. And he like heard two versions of it and thought, I know which one will get me noticed by the editors. Right. I mean, to his credit, he probably thought. That we thought it was kind of a cheap shot because you're right. It was like the old school where they'd spend a lot of time with the president. So they kind of knew and they, everything wasn't a deposition. Right. Yeah. And you were just looking for the gotcha moment where it was right. kind of like, okay, like I can take this out of context and make a big thing out of it. Right. But instead I'm like, you know what? I actually know what this guy means. And right. I know when he's made just a dumb mistake and I'm just right. gonna let that go. You don't have that forgiveness anymore in the yeah. world. And I think it'd be very hard for someone to get away with it. Now. I know a guy who might try it. There's a former statewide elected official who was, who was thinking of running, just go to New Hampshire and try to blow it up. Who's a very interesting person. In what party? A Republican. Hmm. If, if Trump doesn't run and it's 100 Josh Hollies, yeah. uh, it would be interesting. Care, to, care to show the person's name? Oh, hell no. Okay, all right. Um, one big question here to end this kind of biographical section, right? So yeah. post-McCain. Killed a guy in Memphis. Just to, <laughs> no, go ahead. We have uh, Arnold. Yep. We have, uh, it was a big winner. You ran, worked for Meg Whitman here. That didn't go quite right. as well. But you, you yeah, they we're figured out Cal we're Republican because we had a primary. We're here, we're here in California. You know, so you mm -hmm. made a little bit of a bailiwick and Republican. You know, mm -hmm. after Arnold, people wanted to hire you for that kind of stuff. She did some stuff, big state here. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeb remained on your roster. Uh, Mitt, of course, you know, you got right. elected governor. Uh, the right. presidential wasn't quite, you were not as involved in, in 12. As, no, I couldn't because McCain was running. So I told them both I wouldn't take a side in 2008. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. And right. then Romney asked me back in 2012, but I had stuff going on. I couldn't do it. So I gave him a little free advice. So yes, that's what I'm saying. But so I wasn't involved in the campaign. Right. But I think about those people like mm -hmm. Arnold, Meg, Mid, Jeb, excluding Arnold, who for constitutional reasons couldn't be president of the United States. You know, Well, if are, we had a beer hall... <laughs> Those are all of a, they're all Republicans of a type, like a lot of Republicans you've worked for, who are like what used to be mainstream, not some, some moderate, some conservative, but kind of what were thought of as mainstream Republican candidates. Pragmatic right? governing conservative. Yes, right. And Romney became the nominee and got his ass kicked. You know, Jeb <laughs> ran in 2016 and really got his ass kicked. Meg couldn't even win here in California. Couldn't even what do you mean, win. couldn't win in well, California? Well, as I joke with Jerry Brown no, once, let's do a replay in Utah. All I mean is there are people like Meg Whitman who people thought she had a national future. I'm not wow. trying to take a shot. I'm trying to make a point about how your success working for a certain kind of Republican over many years 
that those people, they were very successful and they were considered the future of the party at one point. Right. Mitt was going to be president. Jeb was going to be president. Right. Meg Whitman could have been maybe a Republican like Arnold who won in California. Right. Now, none of them have any place in the party. Zero place uh, in the party. I think right? they're being a little too absolutist, but well, go ahead. Mitt, Mitt has a place in Utah. Like, you know, okay. Mitt's but, but a powerful is, force in the party right now, whether it, or not the party likes it. it but but it, I take your point. The party yes, has evolved in a populist, or Trumpy devolved, direction. Or devolved. Yeah, devolved is probably more accurate. Yeah. And when Jeb ran in 2016, at the beginning, then I went off to the super PAC, yeah. so I couldn't talk to him. But the idea was, he said, look, I'm going to just be me and see what happens. And we kind of knew that it was going to be tough because the party has been populist. We were more worried about Cruz. And then Trump pops up. Right. And then shebang, there it all goes. And so the question right now, or a year ago, I'm not sure where we are right now. Right. The Trumpian populist grievance politics is not good for a Jeb yes. or a Mitt yes. or other people. Yes. I think Mitt could have won in, in the earlier presidential races. But the point my, is, will it come back or not? That's, that's my question. My question yeah. is, given the way the party has evolved and what you've seen and how those people have fallen yeah. out of fashion and given where they are, they're marginal players in the party. They are, even though Mitt has his place, but like, you know, Mitt could run for president in 2024 and be taken seriously. People would laugh him out of the, out of well, the house. Well, the point is none of them voted for Trump. I mean, Mitt might have. I don't know how he voted, but, but I bet money he did. But we could spend a long time with a PhD dissertation on why the party's evolved the way it's evolved. But do you imagine a world in your lifetime where the kinds of candidates that Mike Murphy once had great success electing to governorships, senates, yeah. races, and, and making them very competitive in presidential races could once again be not just maybe not on top of the Republican Party, but at least like taken seriously yes. in, the, in the in the mainstream of national Republican politics. I believe so, but right. I don't know it. What would have to happen for that to happen? Look, parties over time they evolve. Everything come, evolves. Come back to their senses. It's not going to be the answer that's going to work. Well, no, for no, me. that's like, not what I'm going to say. Yeah, good. Over time, parties evolve. Yeah, parties like to win. Yeah. Trump was a stone-cold loser. We got wiped out at every level of government. Yeah. One-trick pony, one one presidential and a bit of an inside draw against a horribly flawed Democratic candidate. Yep. But will it happen? I don't know. I've been watching some polling that's private, and NBC just did it publicly, where we flipped from 55% of Republicans saying Trump first, party second, yep. to the reverse. The largest plurality of Republican voters now say Trump was great, loved him, not, you know, favorable rating. Make you a but time watch. to move on. Right. Okay. And so the question is: Will the cynics, the Hollies, the Tom Cottons, who are doing dime store Trump now because yeah. they think not because they're crazy like Trump and believe it, but they're doing it because they think it'll help them get elected. And if Trump fades, their compass, which is self-oriented, yeah. will change. So over time, a new conservative, more modern approach, a modernized conservative. Yeah. I think it has a fighting chance, yeah. but we'll have to see. Will it be those faces? No. Right. It'll be a new generation of people. Let's take another quick break, and we'll be back with more Mike Murphy on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Mike Murphy on Hell and High Water. Let me now shift to the future. We did a little mashup of Joe Biden's press conference about what, how do you distill what Joe Biden's message is for the midterms? Right. Recounts out a supercut here. Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. What are you for? What are you for? What's Mitch for? What's he for? What's he for on these things? What are they for? I'm saying, what are they for? What, what is their agenda? What is it? What are they proposing to do about it? Anything? Have you heard anything? I mean, anything. I haven't heard anything. 
what would be the Republican platform right now? What do you think? I mean, I, I just, I honest to God don't know what they're for. Now, that's a short version. Like, the number of yeah. what are they for, that's yeah. about a third of them. Yeah. Okay. You know, the basic construct from that press conference, which was very political, I thought, mm-hmm. which was Republicans are for nothing, they're nihilists, and they're under Trump's thumb. Right. We have done a lot, more than people give us credit for, and we want to do more. And we would do more if those guys would just help us. Right. And things are better than you think. We have a big agenda, but they're in the way, and they're not for anything. They won't do anything. They won't govern. They're against us, and that's because they're under the they're intimidated by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the headline takeaway, right? Right. Sure. The rest of them. Is that an effective message for Democrats in the midterms in 2022? Ish, you know. And Biden's not particularly good at it. But if they had reduced Build Back Better from an attempt to basically double the Great Society of four trillion dollars, cost yeah. of World War II, and instead had broken it, instead of taking all their bumper stickers, regardless of whether or not as a conservative, I'm for them, and rolled them up into a basketball of glue that nobody understood, and said, child care tax credit. Does a basketball of glue, does that bounce? No, it just it goes just sticks plop, to the floor. Right, and next okay. thing you know, your poll ratings are 39. So if they had gone with rifle shots that people understood and picked a few good fights, yeah. and made a kitchen table versus do-nothing Republicans, and maybe forced, I think this would be good for the Republicans, drawn them out to have competing proposals like we used to do, I think Biden would be getting some traction. I mean, the House is probably gone for a lot of reasons, typical midterms, other stuff. The Senate, where we might have some dog candidates, they could have a shot if they get the suburbs back. But right now, Biden's lost, like a lot of legislative leaders tend to be in process messaging. Mitch McConnell doesn't have a plan. Well, no, do nothing Republicans versus these three things that mean something to your life. And the Dems have not gotten there yet. Part of it is because they, again, back to the callback to your favorite professor, Mike Lilla, and that argument, they see the nation as a confederation of groups, so all their micropolitics are informed by that, and it's all, well, we gotta have a big clumsy bill of something for this group, that group, the other group, all the groups, the groups are happy we're winning, and nobody knows what it is. So if they would focus on one or two big kitchen table things and go on all this about they're in the way of that, right. they'd be doing better. So that's a good, very good analysis and it makes a lot of sense to me. I want to ask you about a very specific thing related to Democrats, and then I'll ask you about Republicans heading into 2022, which is, you know, Democrats have various problems and a lot of it has to do with, you know. Yeah, they, they have a problem called the Democrats. Yes. I like to say yeah. in this moment, the Democratic Party is too important yes. to be left to the Democrats, but here we are. <laughs> yes. Talk to me about, about where you think, not where you think COVID is, the pandemic, but where mm-hmm. you think COVID is as a political problem for Democrats or a political issue per yeah. se. Because it does, I think there was a New York Times piece about this. It's getting confusing now, right? Where for a mm-hmm. long time it was pretty straightforward. You know, it was like Republicans are anti-science, they're anti-mask, they're not with the program, they're anti-vaccine, they're bad, 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 bad. Conspiracy right. theorists, all true in various ways. Democrats are for science. We're trying to get the control of the virus. We want to do all the right things, follow what the doctors say, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's like, you know, Omicron and the, you know, hey, you could be vaccinated and boosted, but you could still get this thing. And the mask mandates, do they really make sense? And the teachers unions are doing this and that's like, all of a sudden there's like this, even Democrats acknowledge, like there's fatigue among Democrats who really said, I put my faith in Joe Biden, I'll get my shots. But did I really, wait, Am I getting what I bargained for? Did they make good right. on this? Is the messaging confusing? It's a kind of a, you know, the CDC lost credibility. No. What do Democrats do about the fact that it's become now what it is, which is the vaccines are still a fucking huge success and Amazing. they've saved millions of lives. But the politics of this are now and the messaging of it is very tricky, yeah. given all that confusion, the exhaustion, all of it. What do you do if you're a Democrat right now and you're still dealing with the reality of COVID heading into next November 
you know, on the trajectory that we're on. Well, I'll tell you what I think happened and then what the political okay, please. are. What I think happened was, is what should have happened, which was incomplete science, overreaction, and caution at the beginning. A year from now, we're going to know a lot of stuff about COVID that we wish we knew before. We're going to find out that closing schools might not have really had to be done at that level because of the kid transmission. I mean, you know, the problem is they were guessing to be safe early, which you cannot fault them for. Right. The other thing we've learned politically about COVID is it kills presidents because nobody gets any credit. Right. Because all people know is my life screwed up and I'm not getting what I want and I hate wearing masks and somebody's telling me something I don't. So there's no win. You know, what politicians, all, every politician I've ever worked for, probably with a couple of exceptions, when we talk about the re-election campaign, they say, oh, don't worry, I'm cutting your fee in half because I've already written the ad. Here it is. Dear voter, here's all the crap I did for you. Vote for me, damn it. You know, that's what every politician wants to hear. Most voters are like, yeah, you get paid for that stuff, and I don't believe you did it anyway. So with COVID, the best thing they can do is frame themselves to take economic credit for the win. Yeah. Because right now, getting into the details, they're arguing with facts that are moving with more data. And we may find out that, you know, Omicron is going to either infect enough people who don't get really sick. And a whole bunch of people, including more than half of Republicans, have gotten vaccinated. You know, it's not as binary. It's a split in the Republican world. So we're going to move into, we got growth going up. Biden could get a surge of economic good news. And if I were him, I'd ride that horse rather than debate whether or not masks were a good idea. Because generally, you don't win campaigns by debating molecular biology with the average voter. They think an Afghan's a cat, and they're always ready to see what's going on with uh, the real housewives of hell or whatever. So it's a loser, and they are going to have, I think, an opportunity to change the channel. Policy-wise, keep doing it, but don't put the spotlight on it. There's no political win there. As we sit here right now, your prediction is Democrats are going to lose the House, right? They're highly likely to. I'd say about 85%. And the Senate's a tighter question. Yeah, it's more interesting. Some of the primaries will determine things. But if Biden does move his numbers up, yeah. I think we take the Senate. Right. Even with some We, we take the Senate, meaning Republicans. Yeah. We. I, I, it's habitual. I mean, I... I know, you can't help I, I joined the Common Sense Party out here, which is an interesting experiment. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if you know about it, but it's kind of fun. But I consider myself a conservative. You can introduce and, me to your, you and your six fellow members uh, uh, at some point. A little more than that, you okay. cynic. You know, yeah. media cynicism is another problem. Yes. We ought to spend a little I'll time take, on I'll here. take the whole party out to dinner at Arby's. Even you couldn't time, afford so. that. Yeah. Um, okay. But to your point. To my point. McConnell and Trump are tangling, right? McConnell. Yeah. I love it. On politics. Yeah. McConnell basically says, hey, you know what? We're in a good place, using we appropriately here, right. with no confusion who Mitch McConnell is. We're in a good place. The only thing that we're going to fuck us up is if we have a bunch of extreme nutball candidates. If we have extreme nutball candidates, we can fuck this thing up. And we have an orange egomaniac who's going to want to inject himself in campaigns. Well, yes. And and this is McConnell's point, right? The two things happen to go hand in hand. Because he's like, you know, here's what we need. We need candidates to accept the 2020 election results. We don't want to turn this campaign, 2022, into a referendum on 2020 and Donald Trump's grievances and his lunacy and his lies. Right. Unfortunately, Donald Trump's like, no, 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 that's exactly what the 2022 campaign right. should be about. Well, so, no, the 2022 campaign should be about me, Trump, the martyr, but yes. So by extension, yeah, yeah. what that leads to it is, is candidates right. trying to claim that the election was stolen. Right. So, first of all, who wins that battle? I mean, we know Mitch McConnell wins re-election in Kentucky when he has a 24 or 25% approval rating. Right. You know, it's like not like Mitch McConnell's a hugely popular national figure. Right. Trump well, isn't a hugely popular national figure, but he's more popular in the Republican Party than Mitch no, McConnell. He's uh, popular in an island that counts for Republican politics. Totally. So we're watching a shark fight an eagle. Yeah. McConnell. Wait, which one's the shark? Uh, pick. <laughs> I'll make McConnell the eagle. 
Because okay. in, in the world of inside politics, yeah. Republican business interests, yes, right. the machinery of the party yeah. is very powerful. In the ocean of primary votes, the shark is important. Yes. Although the shark is old, few harpoons in it, starting to swim slower, yeah. some new barracudas around, we'll see what happens. Right. So it's hard for them actually to fight. So what they will have is proxy wars yes. in primaries. Yes. McConnell will have money and organization and sanity. Trump will have a grip on at least 40% of the primary voters. Yes. And that's gonna be some of the fighting. So, you know, I, I don't quite know I'm gonna handicap it now. I, I do think Trump's strength is weakening. I just don't know how fast. So Trump goes out and says, getting rid of Mitch as, as, as a leader is right. a, a litmus test for whether you're gonna get my support. And right. basically everybody's kind of said, you know, quietly sort of said, yeah, fuck you. We're not gonna fuck around with Mitch McConnell. Like, yeah, we'll, right. leave, we'll leave Mitch McConnell in. So Trump right. kind of wants an inside game war, not an outside right. game war, but Trump there's something there. Trump can't fight much of an inside game Yes, war. not, right. What, what do you rate the odds of Republican candidates winning primaries where the nut, the nut House Caucus becomes the dominant voice of the party in 2022 and right. therefore could potentially sabotage a very strong hand for Republicans in the midterms. It's possible, particularly in the House, because yeah. the House is, the, the majority of the House are kind of quiet cowards, but there's a vocal chunk of from super crazy, the Trumpy wacko, right. and they're very vocal. Yeah. And people are afraid of Trump in their primary, particularly in the House. Remember, politicians always argue anecdotally with the rearview mirror. Yeah. And Trump really hasn't been pressure tested. Now he's got a couple of dog candidates he's out running. We'll see what happens to them. Some are stronger than others. But that's what the real mark to market moment on this yeah. on Trump will be some of these primaries. But keep in mind, the McConnellites are not gonna run around with a Nelson Rockefeller outfit saying, get rid of Trump. Yes. That doesn't work in a primary. But you're gonna see guys like, I'm blanking on his name, he's impressive, Pennsylvania. Uh, David. Uh, the, 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 what's her name's husband? Yeah, Dina Powell's husband. Yes, yeah, uh, husband, yeah. Insert name here. But David McCormick. They will glue a red hat on him. Yeah. You can already see in his early ads how uncomfortable he is. Yeah, yes. But in the price of beating the, you know, Dr. Oz. Yes. And his leeches and, you know, whatever, and Trump support. His goji berries. Right. Yeah. He might be able to fake it just enough. Yeah. And then, if the Republicans win the Senate majority, then leader McConnell will be in a place to put them all in the room and say, all right, we're in this boat together. I'm the boss, fuck you, Trump. I'm gonna ask you a question about 2024 in a second, but the one last question I ask you about 2022 is this. One of the things that Biden did at that press conference was ask the question, you know, do you think there's a chance that we'll have an illegitimate outcome in 2022? Right. And he said, yeah, maybe, you know, it could be. Like, you know, there's a lot of shit going on. I, I found that answer a non-controversial. Right. In the sense that he's out there campaigning for voting rights because you've got Republican states where they're trying to A, suppress the vote, then distort the vote on the backside. Like, there's efforts to try to subvert democracy going on. So, yes, is it possible if democracy is subverted well, he was that doing the outcome the will be illegitimate? Presidential thing, careful with hypotheticals. Yes. I don't know. Right. Yeah. So, so he says that thing. Some people said it was inappropriate for him to say that they might be illegitimate. Yeah. The thing I'm pointing to is this. Chris Krebs was on the show. And Chris Krebs, who is a person who I, I, I take seriously, in, in the sense that I think there's a logic to this. He's like, 2022, between the voter suppression, voter nullification, voter subversion stuff that's going on, you have two possible outcomes here. You know, if Republicans take control, for the first time, many Democrats will say, right. because of the things I just li listed, that these were illegitimate outcomes. Right. Republicans are going to say it's illegitimate no matter what, right? And his argument was democratic death spiral, that we're getting to the point where the right and the left both have so much distrust for the system that the argument of illegitimacy is going to be made no matter what the outcome yeah. is. And that that death spiral, though it's 
more legitimate for Democrats to have that view than Republicans to have that view, it leads the same place anyway. Do you worry about that? Yes. The Democratic death spiral. Yes. Yes. Because the parties imitate each other. Yes. Right. That's the problem. Yes. And now it's all, I'm right, you're evil. And if you're evil, I can do anything about you because you cheat, lie, and steal, so I'm going to shoot you in the head or lock you up or whatever. And it destroys the good faith that holds the institutions together. You know, by the way, Trump's the one who made this huge. Right. But we've had sparks of it before, 2004. You know, oh, Bush and Gore, Florida, what really happened? There was a little spark of it then, but it was contained by the good faith of most of the political right. establishment. Yeah. Now, the political entrepreneurs who want to succeed in the Trumpy swamp areas of the GOP, right. not all encompassing, yeah. but a lot, thank God for those good Michiganians who shut the things down. In I the think Republic Michiganders Party. is the phrase. Uh, oh, sexist, huh? Canceled. Hmm. No, it's gone back and forth. Michiganians? Mi Michiganders considered sexist by some. I prefer it, but I'm an anachronist. Second, why would Michigander be sexist? Go interview Governor, you know. Wimmer? Well, I was going to say Granholm because oh, I think Granholm. it happened on her watch. Oh, but, well. But and that's your problem, Granholm. not mine. Anyway. That's a Canadian thing. Don't get me started. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the point being this corrosion, this banana republicism yep. of your count is illegal, my count isn't, all that is a real huge problem. Okay. Which is why, by the way, yeah. for all the kabuki theater and anger and base intensity and righteousness and righteous that, and I think hysteria at times about voting rights and what some dumbass relicans might be doing in Georgia. Yeah. Let's fix the New York absentee ballot law while we're at it. Harder yeah. to vote absentee there. Yeah. I remember with McCain, we were barely able to get on that damn ballot because it was still 1899 machine politics. Yeah. They got to fix the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Yes. That's the thing to like suspend the circus and yes. do right now. Yes. Because there are holes in the system, and there are bad people trying to exploit it. And it seems like there might be a little progress in that front. So there's yeah. a reason for yeah, a few to be a little bit of optimism, a little bit of bipartisan. Grown-up senators have figured out it's the it's the immediate it's yeah. the screen door in the sub. Well, it gets to the 2024 question. So I ask you, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it because I know sure. you don't know the answer. But as we sit here today, Donald Trump runs in 2024 or no? My gut is no. My brain is yes. So why I don't no? Know. Why no? What's the argument for him not running? Afraid of being a two-time loser. Yeah. Getting older. Yeah. Trump has always been, I had some experience with Trump when I ran Christy Whitman's politics in yeah. New Jersey and he was scumming around Atlantic City. He tends to be risk adverse in the clutch. Yeah. You know, it's the famous story everybody's heard of when he was driving up the White House, he was he told a Confederate, I was just trying to increase ratings on The Apprentice. Yeah. So I think he may enjoy the camp seat of everybody saying if he runs, he'll be God, than, than risking being a two-time beaten loser. Right. That's emotionally how I kind of calculate it. Intellectually, he looks at Biden in trouble. He'll see polls showing him competitive. Yeah. He'll thirst for revenge. Got plenty of money. Right. And an iron grip on the Republican Party. He is dying to run against Kamala Harris because he would love to run a white identity campaign. Yeah. And he may find it too hard to resist in terms of the calculation. Okay, so... Yeah, if you think of Trump, if runs, he can win the primary, which I think is likely but not certain, is there anybody serious you think who will run if Trump runs? By serious, I mean someone can win. Don't don't say Chris Christie. No, <laughs> uh, he'll probably try. Um, hypothetically, yes. Is there a world where DeSantis would take him on? Yes, he's weaker now. DeSantis smells it. It's like yeah. wolf politics. So I don't know if he's right or not, but they're. They are smelling weakness on Trump. Right. And that vacuum will get filled, and I think somebody will take a poke at him. And if I were thinking about it, if I were DeSantis, and nobody else had the balls to, then I'd really try. Because I got it all to myself if I'm right. Okay, so Trump doesn't run. Let's say Trump doesn't run. And Let's, the world runs. I just want to play Nikki Haley. 
I'm not really interested in Nikki Haley as much as I am interested in what this says about the non-Trump Republican bench. Here's Nikki Haley. This is her message currently. If Biden loved our country, he would step down and take Kamala with him because the foreign policy situation is beyond dangerous at this point. And, you know, when you don't have a strong America, you don't have a safe world. And that's what's getting ready to happen. And and, you know, my only hope and prayer is that they get it together and realize this isn't about America. This isn't about, you know, NATO. This is about all of us. This is about safety. This wait, is did, about strength. And this is about freedom winning. The crazy right wing host is just about to say, wait, did you just call for the president, the vice president to step down? Yeah. And she's about to then go on and say, well, yes, look around. It's obvious they should step down. So Nikki Haley was once, not that long ago, in, in our recent lifetime, yeah. was once considered the stable, sane, yeah, non-nuthouse non version of someone in the Trump administration. I've been around South Carolina politics, South Carolina, but no, most cynical person in American politics. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, yeah, Tom a million Cotton, imitators. all these fake populists, Ivy League yeah. educated, fake, uh, they, I don't right. know where they learned their Southern accents because right. they didn't learn them at Princeton or Harvard or wherever they right. went. They're all out there, right? Who in that crop, if you look at the people that we know would run, I just listed some of them, mm -hmm. definitely running if Trump's not running. Tom right. Cotton, Ted Cruz, Mickey Haley, Ron DeSantis, definitely all those guys are running, and, right. and others, right? What right. does that field look like to you, and where do you think, not who's going to win, but what are the factions and fault lines in a Trump-free but Trumpified Republican right. Party? Well, the question is, will the Trump glue stick if Trump goes away? Or will these cynics start to recalibrate post-Trump because they think the market's moved? And some of them will say, damn it, I'll be Trump all the way. And some will be, I'll be hybrid. You know, there'll be a lot of calculation because that's what they all resonate to. Yeah. Then you have maybe a Larry Hogan or somebody. I don't think there's room in the primary, but may try. Ben Sass is interesting because he's who he is and he's a little different. Yeah. Not a complete Trumper, but an absolute conservative with the evangelical community. And then you have regional powerhouses who can raise money like DeSantis, who is an adroit, if also epically cynical politician. So I, I, I don't, it'll be like a lot of people with compasses trying to find a North Pole that's fading, but there'd be no shortage of them. I think in that world, kind of an anti-politics dark horse could break through at least early. Yeah. I would keep on, this guy's broken my heart because I know him to be smart and patriotic and he's, he's slandered, well, not slandered, he's slummed in Trump world. Yeah. But there's one superstar in the house. Who's I that? think potential candidate, Dan Crenshaw. Mm. Okay. He has the chops to go a long way. I just hope he finds his yeah. soul after this Trump stuff. And I may run. Yes. I'm going to run in New Hampshire, and I'm going to make a documentary about it called Eliminate the Middleman uh, and pound the last yes. nail in my Republican coffin. It seems to me the evidence is much stronger right now that the Republican Party is now the party of Trump, even if Trump is not there. That it's no longer about him. Yeah. That it's really about the fact that they... Well, because everybody's in the They drank, they they drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I, I would just say... We always think the party of today is the party of the next New Hampshire primary, and yeah. I've learned through hard experience that's not true. Yeah. Sometimes it is, yeah. and sometimes it's not. That's why you need to either run or be a strategist in 2024 because, you no. know. No, I'm the kiss of death because I, I, I can't be in a Republican primary now, but if I well, run, only, I'm looking for a running mate. The New Hampshire primary is Mike Murphy's primary. Oh, the, I, the South Carolina primary. That's the problem. That's not Mike Murphy's primary. Yeah. Well, and no. Unfortunately, I, the Republican Party looks a lot more like South Carolina primary. Than Charleston's the just fine. Yes. But if I get more than 20 <laughs> miles away from the water, the Charleston the primary gets thin. Right, the Charleston yeah. primary. You're not as yeah. good in green. I'm not a big Bob Jones guy. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not as good in Apple green. Apple influence is yeah. too strong. Okay. Yep. Um, you're awesome. Oh no, this is fun.
Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Mike Murphy for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel, Castro Russell, is our executive producer. 